Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. And this morning I'd like to begin by reading the first five verses. Isaiah 62 and verse 1. Let's stand together and hear the very word of God. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And everybody said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray this morning you'd open up this word to us, that we would know your love, that it would be sealed in our own hearts, and that, Father, we would know your commitment that you have to this church, the very bride of your Son, who is, in a very real sense, one of us. Father, thank you for this word. What a beautiful word. May we receive it and live it out this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I hope this study through the book of Isaiah is not boring to you. It's a long book. I get it. We've been at it for 11 years. I think for some, they find that Isaiah or various portions of the Bible is irrelevant, and so they find no immediate application to themselves. And that's the reason why I think so much of the Old Testament is seen as boring to so many professing Christians. They just don't see it as applying to themselves. But I believe this applies to us. I believe that this is fulfilled in Jesus and His church. And so, if you are in Christ, if you are in His church this morning, then you have a vital interest in this. Now, one of the things I think I've learned over time is that one sermon doesn't do that much good. So John Piper told me once. Uh, now, when you're a young pastor, you really think that the next sermon is it. This is going to be the one. Uh, but as time progresses, I think you know God humbles all of us, doesn't he, over time? And we find that it's not one sermon, it's a thousand sermons. It's almost like, you know, am I going to pour... 100,000 gallons of water over one plant over one time and somehow expect that to be the, the means by which that thing's going to bear some fruit? I don't think so. The farmer's going to have to come back to it over hundreds and hundreds of days to, uh, to bring forth the fruit. And so it is with us. I wish we could just add water, throw it in the microwave for 60 seconds, and it would be all one and done, but that's not the way the Christian life works. So I just want to encourage you this morning to come to church, come back to the Word every day, and be fed by the Word of God. You're, you're a plant. You need a little water. You need to grow. So receive the Word with joy each and every day. 
But today we're going to look at Isaiah 62. And I want to give you a little more context again. Let's not just jump right into it before finding out where we are. Now what, we are, what we've done is that we've gone through all of the prophetic statements, much of which have been uh, laments uh, coming out of the prophet, as in the case of the prophet Hosea, so Isaiah, and many of the other prophets, they lament very much about the condition of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. God's people have broken the covenant. That is, they've broken relationship. When you hear, they broke covenant. When you hear somebody that broke covenant in a marriage. You say, they broke relationship. But it was a very important relationship. It was the marriage relationship, a covenant relationship, the, the tightest, most important relationship, human relationship. And so God's people broke relationship with God. And uh, we have all broken relationship with God. So we can apply this, of course, immediately to all of us in that we have broken relationship with God. It's what it is to, to sin against God. We did it in Adam. And we do it in our own lives as we, as we have inherited the, the wicked, uh, sinful nature of Adam into ourselves. And then we live that out. Uh, we ourselves have broken covenant with God. But also there are times in which the apostate people of God break covenant again. This has happened here in this passage. So when it comes to sin, when you've sinned against God, you rebelled against God, you've broken covenant with God... You can think of it either individually or corporately. In one sense, yes, we have all sinned against God. We have sinned in Adam. And so we all say, we have all sinned. And so here we are in a sinful people, sinful nation, or sometimes even a sinful church. So we can say that I have sinned. We can say that we have sinned either way. Uh, We can say it in both ways. We have rebelled against God or I have rebelled against God. It's a both and. So now, of course, in much of evangelicalism today, uh, they don't want to admit that we have sinned, but that I have sinned. And so there is a tendency not to think in terms of the corporate people of God, but that's not the way the Scriptures bear it out. The Scriptures bear out that there is a both end. There's an individual sense and a corporate sense in which we have all sinned against God. And so in this passage, particularly, there's a sense of that corporate sinfulness uh, against God. Now let's go over a couple of the laments that have come in previous chapters. Uh, Isaiah has spoken of the divorcee and the harlot. Now what is the divorcee and the harlot? The divorcee and the harlot are those who are outside of relationship. Those who have lost relationship. In some cases they have abandoned relationship. In the case of the harlot, certainly. They have trashed relationship. So that's what the harlot is. That's what the divorcee experiences, is this loss of relationship. Now, it's a a heartbreaking condition. No question. It's a very heartbreaking condition for the children of men. We are all by nature broken covenant with God. And so, in a very real sense, we are the harlots and we are the divorcees. And it is our fault. We talk about sometimes the innocent party in divorce. But when it comes to the divorce that we've had with God in the covenant of works and sometimes even within the covenant of grace, we find this, that there is a broken relationship and that broken relationship came about because of the guilty party. Who's the guilty party? It's us. We are the ones. And so Isaiah 50 speaks of that. Isaiah 50, beginning at the beginning of the chapter, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce? Whom I have put away? But which of my creditors is it whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. 
So here a presentation of the divorce that the, the overall mother of the people of God or the church in the Old Testament has gone through. Here is the crushing reality, the heartbreak, the devastation of a broken covenant. And so I think you need to feel a little bit of a pain in your chest as you come across this example of this divorce that has happened. It's a very difficult thing, very heartbreaking condition. It's the worst of all conditions. It's, it's, it is hard. Somebody goes through a divorce. I'm telling you, it's very hard, okay? I want you to know that, okay? I want you all to understand that. It's heartbreaking. This is what's happened to us by nature. It's a broken relationship with God. It's a very serious matter. Very hard. But then in Isaiah 57, we have another example of this. The righteous perishes. No man takes it to heart. Isaiah laments. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers the righteous taken away from the evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorcerers, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children of the valleys under the clefts of the rock? So this is the condition of God's people. But then let's move on to Isaiah 61. With the coming of Jesus, the announcement comes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So there's the breaking out of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God upon Jesus first, and then upon the, the people of God during Acts chapter 2. And then this is the beginning of the worldwide church. This, this, is, now the, this is now the success case of the people of God. Now this is the coming back together under Jesus. A growth that never subsides, a continuous spirit working. The gospel is broadcast from Nazareth now to the ends of the earth, and it's received. And people who, who were feeling the pain of, of being the sons of the harlot and, and involved in the divorcee case, in their relationship with God, and they, they saw the brokenness of this relationship with God restored in Jesus. And this was an amazing thing, and it, it began to, to, to come and spread throughout uh, Jerusalem and all the way through up. Uh, out to uh, Asia Minor and then up into a Europe and then around the world. And so, so this, was, this is the vision that Isaiah is bringing to the people of God in the Old Testament. We ourselves have experienced this. And then we come to verse 1 of our chapter today. So I, I wanted to walk you through that a little bit so you understand the context of this passage that's before us today. Isaiah 62, now here's what he says in the first verse. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace... And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Now, he speaks of Zion. This is where Hebrews 12 speaks of how we have come to Mount Zion. So we as the church in the New Testament, we have come to Mount Zion. 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the great general assembly and church of the firstborn. And so this, this is where we have come in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. And this is what is spoken of in Isaiah 62 and verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. This is God speaking here. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. So here's the commitment of God. I want to start with this. This is God's commitment, and that is to build the church. And children, as Jesus said, he confirms this exactly with the same kind of passion in the New Testament when he said on this rock that is the rock of his own being, his own nature, his own purpose for coming, and that is that he is the Son of God, the Christ of God. On this rock, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we hear the commitment of God, that God himself has now set down to accomplish this goal, or this objective, to build the church. And, and even the gates of hell, which, as I think it's appropriate to see, this is the, the demonic pushback. This is all the satanic forces from hell are not going to oppose the building of the church of Jesus Christ. It will happen. All their endeavors may fail in this world. Napoleon failed. He died a broken man on an island off the coast of Africa, as most of you know. Lenin failed. The whole thing was a disaster. It was a hundred-year experiment and communist total disaster. Now the oligarchs are spending up all the cash. Abraham Lincoln failed. Napoleon failed. They all failed. But Jesus will not fail. He hasn't failed. He is building his church. And the objective is clear in the first verse there. What does it say? Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and salvation as a lamp that burns. In other words, he's committed to this objective to to have a holy church, to have a, a church that is the, shines the glory of God, that is the transforming grace of God working in the people of God, that this is a successful en- endeavor that he's going to bring about. Ephesians 5 again, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, exactly the words we find here in Isaiah 62, this is the objective of Almighty God, that he have a church, that the church be holy, that the church be shining the glory of God, that God has done this, that he's bring about, brought about a light in the world, and that is, that is the church. The Old Testament church was not so much the pride and joy of God. That's what we get throughout, you know, the prophets, right? The, it's an embarrassment. It's a shame to the nations. And, and they're dragged away into exile. And it's, just, it's just an embarrassing failure. This is the way it appears. Not so much the pride and joy of God, but with the coming of Jesus, the church is now the glorious work of God on earth. It's a glorious church. And then verse 2 says that the nations would see the righteousness of the church. And the kings as well would see the glory of of the church, such a, such a beautiful, beautiful picture. And it's for us to share this vision. We're going to get to that a little bit later, but I'll just stick in that. 
that uh, we need to love the church. We need to love the church as, as God loves his church. And apostasy is when people leave the church. And it, it's, it's really bad news when our children sour on the church. Like, what is apostasy? Apostasy is when people leave the church and they sour on it. That's apostasy. Their attitude turns negative towards the church. And they don't, they don't think of the church as God thinks of it. It's the apple of his eye. It's the pearl. It's a beautiful thing. So instead of depreciating the church, one of my goals today is that we appreciate the church. Appreciate, not depreciate, but appreciate the church as God appreciates the church. And let's talk about that. Verses 2 to 5, we find that he gives his church a new name. What's the name? She's a wife and a bride, but more specifically, she takes on the name, a new name, the name of his son. And that I believe you get from verse 5. We're going to look at verses 2 through 5, but let's read it right now. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her, and your land Beulah, or married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. This idea of your sons marry you is, is that is one of you will marry you. That's what he's saying there. Now that's a little bit confusing, especially as put in the plural. It's probably one of the most confusing elements of this chapter, but I don't think it should be confusing, because what he's saying is, one of you shall marry you. So if one of you is marrying you, then who is that? Well, it has to be Jesus. Jesus is one of us. He's become one of the brethren. He's become us in terms of his humanity, his flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood like us. And so that he would be able to be in relationship with us and in relationship with God. So he is the God-man. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the means by which God has relationship with us forever and ever by means of his deity and his humanity. So that is, that is the promise, that, that is the goal, that's the objective here, that he will give his people a new name, and that new name will be the name of his own son. And as he speaks to us, he's speaking to the son. The son is the head of the body, so connected to us, in relationship with us. And then verse 2 speaks of this church, you shall be as a, also a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. The, the idea of the the crown is, is a, a manifestation of the glory as a wife is a crown to her husband. Something similar we read in 1 Corinthians 11 where the wife is the glory of her husband as in the beauty of her husband or the, the, the shining forth crown of her husband. This is one reason why we tell husbands, don't kick your crown around. You know, as a, as a husband uh, treats her, his wife poorly, uh, that would be an example of somebody who's kicking his crown. He has no glory. He's kicking his glory around. He doesn't see himself as one who has been gifted by this beautiful crown. And his wife is this crown or this glory of, of himself. 
But this is the picture used for the church. The church is the crown on the king. The crown is not the king himself. It doesn't express his power, his glory, essentially. But it gives you an impression of the gloriousness of the king. Americans see the king and the crown on king, uh, Charles III, I think, is somewhat ridiculous. And that's because we've lost the sense of gloriousness. Charles III doesn't appear to be very glorious to it. Well, maybe for other reasons. Uh, but there isn't a lot of gloriousness in the minds of so many people today. Especially when it comes to those who are preeminent, those who are over uh, the, the, the kingdom, this sort of thing. But the reason why we've lost a sense of, of the gloriousness of God or the gloriousness of the church or the gloriousness of Jesus is because of the preeminence of the individual in our day. The deification of individual man. Individuals have this impression that they must be a god. And so man has attempted to make himself glorious apart from God, but that is how he degrades himself and he himself loses all sense of glory in the process. But the point is that Jesus is glorious, God is glorious, the church is glorious as the crown of Jesus, as the church is in relationship with, with Jesus. Let's move on. We're talking about this uh, Old Testament church that's been characterized uh, in Hosea and Isaiah as well as a prostitute or a divorcee. Because the Old Testament church had lost relationship with God. And so now the question is, now here you are in 700 B.C. or 400 B.C. or 4 B.C. And you're asking, okay, so given that the Old Testament church had become a prostitute and divorcee, how in the world could this be salvaged? Or redeemed by one member of the church. One member of the church would stand forth. And who is that? One member of the Old Testament church, a branch out of the olive tree, a branch of David, a, a seed of Abraham. One member of the Old Testament church would have to come forth. To redeem the church. So that the church would not be relegated as a divorcee. Or relegated as that which had broken covenant with God. One member of the church. And this is what all the Old Testament is looking forward to. That Jesus would come as the son of David. The son of Abraham. And he would reconcile both the Jews and the Gentiles to God in one body. Through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity between God and man. And so that's how Jesus becomes the first cornerstone in the building, the head of the body, and the beginning of a new church. Jesus is round two. Jesus is 2.0. On the development of a new building, of a new temple, of a new body, of the new church, of the New Testament. So now, the promise... And here's the beautiful story. The rebel, the divorcee, the forsaken becomes the bride. Beulah. Beulah means the married one or married. 
So now it's hard to be abandoned, forsaken, left alone, unloved, albeit by willful rebellion on the part of Old Testament Israel. It's a hard state. It really is. This is a bad condition to be in. Perhaps the worst possible condition, indeed the worst possible condition for, for all of human existence is to be abandoned of God, forsaken of God. And now the sinner has turned from God. The rebellious church has turned her face from God, but then God has turned his face back towards the sinner in Jesus. This is the most beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, that the forsaken, the one who is alone, the one who's been abandoned, or the one who has abandoned and, and wandered as a vagabond east of Eden or anywhere else in the world, that, that the forsaken, the abandoned, has become the bride. See, that's the beautiful thing. The, the unloved is now loved. And she is the sole attention of her bridegroom. The one who is despised is now rejoiced over. The one who is rejected is now the object of delight. And so now Zion is the object of delight. And, and you and I are part of it as we are part of the body of Christ. And this is what Jesus affirms again and again in his ministry. And then the apostles say the same thing. What does Jesus say to his little church? He gathers the little church around him. He says, y'all love one another just as I have loved y'all. That's what he says. That's in the second person plural. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Or 1 John 4.19, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Why? Because we're all part of the same family here. Ephesians 3.19 as well. Listen. So that Christ may dwell in y'all's heart through faith. Now I'm using the second person plural because it's always the second person plural. Or first person plural. Either way. We tend to think of these as individualistic passages, but these are written to full churches. And so it's the church gathered together and And Paul says that Christ may dwell in y'all's heart through faith, that y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints as a body, that you will comprehend with all the rest of you as a body what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you all may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, so the message is clear that that y'all are loved by God with a love that surpasses all knowledge. And then in Ephesians 5, we also read, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So together as the bride of Christ, we need to feel the love of God as God's people. Something similar shows up in Zephaniah chapter 3. Let me share this briefly with you. This is speaking to Zion, that is the church. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. What does that, what does that mean? That's like, I don't know, a celebration, right? Does that sound like a celebration to you? Some people call worship a celebration. Maybe it should be something of a celebration. But, but here, we're to shout and to sing. These are great things going on. Why? The Lord has taken away your judgment. He has cast away your enemy. The Lord your God 
In your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Is God singing over us? God is delighting in us. God is rejoicing in us. We, we are the apple of his eye. We're the thing that he loves more than anything else. This is the thing. This is God's thing. This is, as it were, again, the wedding day. And the bridegroom is watching as the bride comes down the aisle. And how does the bridegroom feel at that moment? What is he thinking? He's delighting as the bride. He's rejoicing. He's loving. He's, he's excited. He's celebrating. He's, he's ready to sing. Well, it's also interesting here that, that he brings about our salvation he redeems his bride, and we find this in every passage. Zephaniah 3, we see it here, certainly in the last verse of Isaiah 62. And then Psalm 18, we heard a brother preach on that a couple of months ago. And this is where, you know, this is us drowning in the waters, so reaching out to the heavens, crying out, oh God, come down and save us. And then God just moves heaven and earth. You know, he's, he's, he's throwing mountains aside. He's creating earthquakes, volcanoes. The whole earth is being shoved aside. God's coming down to save his bride. He's moving heaven and earth to bring it about. And then why? Because he delights in me. Because he delights in us. He does it for his delight. He does it for his own joy. He does it for his own glory. He does it for his own appreciation of the wedding and the, the bride and, and all that that means to him. Amen. Hallelujah. And, and why, why this picture of the bride and the bridegroom? It has to be because this is the highest joy experienced by any culture around the world. I, I think everybody relates to this. The wedding day. It's a big deal. It's a beautiful thing. It's the day in which we take joy in that which we love. We rejoice in that we are loved and that we love and that the one who is loved loves to be loved and loves the one who loves her. Should I say that one more time? Anybody confused? Let me say that one more time. I mean, what is it? I'm trying to define it. Why is the bridegroom in a good mood? Why is the bride looking rather radiant and happy about this? Why? Well, because we take joy in that which we love. We rejoice in that we are loved ourselves and that we love and that the one who is loved loves to be loved and loves the one who loves her. To be loved is a good thing. It's a great thing. But what is it to be loved of God? Who is the greatest lover of all? What, what is it? You know, you know, this is love, not that we love, but that God loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins, right? It's, this is love. God defines love. He's, he is love. So one of the few God is. God is light. God is love. There's two or three others. I'm sorry, I can't remember them. It's in my book. But, uh, but what, what amazes me is that love is one of the few. It's there. It's one of the very first things that's defining, ultimately defining, of God himself. And to be loved of God is such a beautiful thing. Forget the love of men. 
Forget the love of women. Forget the love of anybody else in the world. There you are in a communist prison, loved by God. And it's the, the love of God that sustained Witcher Wormbrand for what, those 14 years in that Romanian prison. To be loved is a great thing, but to be loved of God is the greatest thing in the universe. Think of his love. I just want a few more adjectives to help you. You write them down if you want to. God's love is preferential. Yeah, it actually is. His love for his church, his love for this church is preferential. What does that mean? That means when a husband loves a wife, he's not out there loving all these other wives. His love is preferential. His love is an undeserved love, an initiating love. We didn't initiate, God initiated. His love is a love of delight, celebratory love, and enthusiastic love. He sings over us, God's singing over us. There you see God out the window, serenading, singing to us. That, that's, you know, it's, wow. God's got a romantic edge, so to speak, right? He's, he, he delights in loving this bride, the bride for his own son. And finally, it's eternal love, which if, if you, you've ever been... I don't know, have you ever experienced my love for you? Say, well, yeah, I think he might have been kind of loving two years ago once. It's just not that consistent, right? It's not, not quite as eternal as you would like it to be. I'm just using myself as an example, but you could use anybody as an example, right? Of our love is just, it's kind of like here and there. It's, it's here for a moment, then gone the next. It's, it's not necessarily something you can hang on to. But God's love is dependable. God's love is eternal. God's love continues. God's love is something you can count on. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to be there forever. He has given us a name. And she will live up to that name. Verses 11 and 12, quickly. I'm going to move ahead to verses 11 and 12, then back, back up just a little bit. Um, but let's look at 11 and 12. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. That God came, he sought us out. He did the work. He brought about our salvation. He paid the price. He redeemed us. And we will be his holy bride. So this is us. This is the local visible assembly of true believers here or anywhere else in the world today. Now the obligation for us, how do we respond? What should we do? Here we are the church in the 21st century. How, how do we Respond to this, the, the vision of God, the, the, the project that God has laid out, the thing that matters the most to him in reference to this world. How do we respond to this? Well, there's an obligation. Get on board the project. Say amen to this effort. Verses 6 and 7. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes, till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That is, get on board it. 
This is especially for pastors and deacons. But a lot of the commentators say, no, this is for everybody. This is for all of us. And there may be some that are dragging heels on the church. Perhaps there's somewhat of a cooled enthusiasm about building the local church, planting new churches, supporting churches throughout Zambia, Malawi, Nepal, China, wherever, or discipleship. Or, but what is this? This is, to, this is to say, I'm on board. This is my project as much as it is God's project. Are we excited about what the Apostle Paul is doing in the first century? What the Apostle Peter was doing? Are we excited with what Jesus is doing? You excited about what God is envisioning here? Is this what gets your heart uh, racing? Is, is this the project of your life? Is this the thing that you're getting behind more than anything else? The church is a priority to God. And it will be a priority to every believer. As much as it was in Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 25, 6, 27, 28, etc. So as we think about this, brothers and sisters, here we are. We've been regenerated, saved justified, members of the church. Let me ask you this. Why are you here? What are you doing here? Why aren't you in heaven? Why are you living your life? What are you supposed to do? Why didn't God just take you to heaven? What do, you, what do the epistles say? What, what, what does God's word say to the average person who sits in church whether it be Corinth or Ephesus or Galatia or wherever, what, what does the word say? What, what are we supposed to do in our Christian lives? And every epistle has usually three to four chapters of, of indicative of doctrine. You're saved. God has redeemed you. You're justified. You belong in the family of God. You are the son of the living God now. And then, now what does he say in chapter 12 and 13 and 14 of Romans and Chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. What in the world are you supposed to be doing? Doesn't take a rocket science to figure it out. Just read the word for 10 minutes. You'll figure it out. Two things, basically. And by the way, evangelism isn't the first thing. It's usually the first thing that most churches speak of. Yes, we to, we to, to get out there and shine Jesus everywhere. We're, we're to, yeah, be God's you know, salt and light wherever we are. That's, a, that's an indicative, that's definitive, that's who we are. But what is the imperative of Ephesians? What are you supposed to be doing, brothers, sisters? What is it? What is it that God wants of you? What are the basic takeaways? There's only a couple of them in Ephesians, in Romans, etc. Number one is to love the body of Christ. Number one is to be doing to one another's. Pray for one another, exhort one another. Share with one another the word of God. Build up one another from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's it. That's number one. That's why you're here. You're here for the church. You're here for the one another's. That's what God tells you to do. That's why you're here. That's why you're not dead now. You're here to love the body of Christ. You're here to pray for the body of Christ. You're here to invest yourself into the body of Christ. That's why you're here, number one. Number two, you're here for some, not everybody. There's some who have a gift of singleness. But for those who get married, you're here to love your wife, submit to your husband, 
and to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why you're here. Those are the things God wants you doing. Just read the epistles and ask Jesus, what do you want me doing? What am I supposed to be doing for the next 20, 30, 40 years of my life? What should I invest myself into? What, what is the will of God for me? Read Romans 12, 13, 14, 15. Read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Just read the Bible. There's a reason you're here. You're here for God's project. You're a very important part of this project. When you're on your deathbed, looking back on your life, what will you be glad about? What is life all about? Voting Republican? Getting Trump into power? Making a ton of money? Raising your children so they'll get a good job? Or doing your part to prepare a bride for eternity? Loving the bride of Christ? Caring for the tortured body of Christ and the persecuted church around the world? You only live your life once. This is it. What are you going to do? What do you want to do with your life? It's a good question, isn't it, for all of us. What are the important things? Are you making decisions in life that accord with your proper priorities? That's why be deliberate, be intentional, think about it. Okay, I only have 10 years left or 20 years or 30 years. What am I going to do? Your decisions regarding marriage, jobs, how you spend your time, how you spend your vacation, and so forth. Is it all about the church? Or is it about something else? Why are you here? Why are you making the decisions you're making in relation to your work life, in relation to your future marriage, or whatever it might be? Why are you making those decisions? Is it for the benefit of the church? Is the church a first priority in your own life, in your own decisions that you're making? Do you share the heart of God? The function of the watchman is prayer. Look at verse 7 again. You shall give him no rest. You're not going to give God any rest until he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. That's it. You're not going to give God any rest. You're going to engage the prayer life of the church, and you know the spiritual life of any church is directly proportionate to the, the prayer life of the church. That's it. The prayer life of the church is the thing that matters more than anything else. Are you praying for the church? Are you, are you not going to give God any rest? God, I am not going to let you go until you bless the church. I'm not going to let you go until you bless the persecuted church. I'm not going to let you go until you bless our church and you plant more of these churches across the Colorado Plains. I'm not going to let you go, God, till you bless our church. You shall give him no rest till he establishes until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. And let me tell you this, those bars of iron, those gates of brass don't yield easily. I'm going back to Sudan and other countries around the world, adding another 100 pages to taking the world for Jesus. And I'll tell you this much, they took Sudan over about 90% dead bodies of missionaries. 
About 90% of them died in the process in the first 20 years. And they'd die within three, four years. The average lifespan of a missionary in Eastern Africa was two years, seven years elsewhere, two years. They said, put a graveyard in before you build the church because you're going to be a lot of dead bodies. Those gates of iron and those uh, brass bars, they don't yield easily. No way, no way. Only by the prayers and supplications of the saints beating on the gates of heaven are we going to see the church established here or anywhere else. A prayerless church is a dead church. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to be on fire in our prayer lives. We need to be beating on the gates of heaven. Every church is going to have to deal with the question, are we, are we going to be a church of programs or a church of prayer? Are we going to be a church that doesn't do anything, has no vision, doesn't share a commission in the mission of Jesus? Or are we going to be a, chair that, a church that uh, prays down the gates of hell? What kind of church are we going to be? Are we alive? Are we engaging? We share the mission? Are we on board the mission? You shall give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Obviously, a dead and dried up church is not a praise. An anemic church is not a praise. The compromising church is not a praise. Scandal risen churches, not a praise. Deeply divided churches, not a praise. Hillsong, with all its drunkenness and publicized violations of the seventh commandment, it's not a praise. We have a lot to pray for still. That's what I'm saying. A lot to pray for. Because what's, what's the thing we're praying for? That, that the church would be a praise in all the earth, in all the nations of the earth, beginning right here where we are. Give God no rest till he establishes, until he makes Zion a praise in the earth. Day and night, we give God no rest. Now the blessing on the church will not fail. This is verse 8 and 9. The blessed church will continue to be blessed and will no longer disobey God. No more will the church as a whole lose access to the blessing of God. In other words, the church will not break covenant. I'm not saying that the church at times isn't, you know, having issues. We see that with the churches in Asia Minor. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not breaking covenant. It's not a failure. It's not going to be like it was in Israel in Old Testament days. That's the promise here. And I I do believe our 2,000 years, this promise has been witnessed by ourselves. And anybody else looking back over church history, this, this indeed has happened. God has fulfilled this promise. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. And the sons of the foreigners shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored, but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. just means the blessing of God will just continue nonstop, generation after generation, century after century. And that's what we've seen around the world. Final application, verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. What does this mean? I do believe it's primarily to pastors and evangelists, deacons and elders. Yes, facilitate a way into the city. Make a way into the city. Invite them into the city. Lift up the banner for the nations. 
Now, yes, this is the evangelistic cry. And this is essential. This is, this is to open the gates, bring them in, absolutely. And I believe this, this message is more urgent than ever, to lift up the banner for the nations. Every tribe and nation is going to come into the church. It's already coming into the church. In the last hundred years, there's been an exponential increase in the number of nations and tribes that have come into the church of Jesus Christ. It's phenomenal. Just phenomenal. But let's not be as the elder brother in the parable. The problem in the parable was not the prodigal son. You understand me? The problem in the parable was the elder brother. He was the problem. And he was the reason for the parable. And I believe that this tends to apply to people who've been in the church for at least one, maybe two generations. Almost without exception, children of godly parents will become the elder brother if they don't regain the mission vision. And this is what happens to the Dutch Reformed in South Africa. This is what happens to the Germans, the Lutherans. This is what's happened to the frozen chosen here in America as well. What tends to happen? They lose the zeal. They don't get on the mission. They don't gain the vision that God has for his church. And oh, brothers and sisters, I think this is the biggest mistake made in South Africa and Europe and America as well. They've lost, they lose the missionary fervor. They usually start making money. That's usually what happens. That's what happened the second generation of Hawaiian missionaries. Started making money, took over the whole land, then turned the government over to America in what was it, the 1920s, 1930s. One of the most shameful actions taken by the sons of missionaries in all of missions history. Terrible story. But that's what tends to happen. They start making money. And they start feeling pretty good with all the blessings and the money that God has given them. And then they dry up on the mission's vision. And that, brothers and sisters, is the way apostasy happens, and God's not going to bless that. They become, as the elder brother, not thrilled at the notion of one sinner repenting. Some have blocked the way into the church by cultural pride in their own heritage. Sometimes it's white European heritage, cultural pride in their heritage. It just dries everything up emphasizing cultural applications of God's law over the law of God itself by not glorying in their own redemption of sin from sin and the devil or by spiritual anemia, by not loving God very much, not loving the church very much, not loving anybody except themselves very much, by despising sinners who wear their sin on their sleeves instead of hiding their sin under their sleeve like the hypocrites in the church do by not realizing that we're all sinners in desperate and urgent need of the grace of God to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm just giving you examples of how the elder brother thinks and how he operates. This is the kind of thing that happens with these frozen chosen churches where they lose the vision, the mission, because they lose the sense of the gospel itself as it applies to themselves. So brothers and sisters, what are we saying here? Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. This is the household of God. It's the bride of Christ. It's the pride of God. It's the bride of Christ, the pride of God, the work of God here on earth. It's the place where those who Christ has redeemed and Christ has restored, they all come together. The, the raggedy sinner man and the raggedy sinner woman, they come into this church 
and, and, and they realize that they've all received the grace of Christ, and they see the blood of the Son of God all around them, and say, what is this blood? And we say, it's the blood of Jesus, the Creator, your Creator. He died on that cross for you and for me. And he cleanses us from all our unrighteousnesses, all our filthinesses. He forgives all of our sins. He invites us into his kingdom. He makes us his bride. He takes us as the household of God forever and ever. This is it. And, 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 and we have our brothers and sisters, everybody saying amen. This is the place of God's love. And the entire world is invited there. You know... I believe every nation would resonate to this message because we live in a loveless world. It's a cold world. It's a bad world. And I've been to many nations, Africa, Asia, South America. I've been all over the world, and I will tell you, it's a bad world. And the love of so many has grown cold. And there isn't much love out there. But there is always the love of God shown to us, and we can share that with others to be loved, to the object of God's delight and to be rejoiced over by God. That's a message that just can't be contained, you know? We're going to have to get it out. We have to open the gates. We're going to have to share that with others as well. And indeed, this is the third requirement for us. As the church of Jesus Christ, let's get the message out. Let's have a passion for missions. Let's bring more in. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We bless you, O oh God, for this beautiful vision that you have come to uh, this woman that is so broken, so, so sinful, so rebellious, and that's us. Father, here we are at the feet of Jesus again. We are the needy ones. We are the ones that have been bought by the blood of Jesus. We are the ones forgiven. O oh God, that we would know this, that it would sink into us today, that we'd know how much we are loved how much you love the church, how much you delight in it, how much you rejoice over us, that you sing over us. Father, help us to know it and help us to receive it and then help us to live it every day. Jesus, you said, I have loved you now. Love one another. Oh God, that we would live that out here in this body and that the world would first see a revival here. The world would see that something happened here on this hill. The world would see that we are the loved ones. And they will see how we love one another. And they'd be blown away by it. And more of them would come in. Jesus, make it so by your Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Oh, that we would see these realities with a freshness. And that we would have a period of refreshing and tremendous growth. And as my brother prayed, multiple conversions and baptisms in this body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read that last verse one more time. This is true of all of God's works and all of his nature as expressed in our redemption. Listen one more time. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You all agree with that? Amen. Amen. 
From time to time, we just need to step back in awe and just say, as we said last week, as Tozer said, just fall on your face and say, God. In this case, the love of God. Well, we come once more to the table. And again, in this world of so much death and pain, there are times of happiness and celebration. And as I said, every culture in the world relates to this. The most joyful, glorious time in life on earth happens with the wedding feast, happens with the marriage. This is true everywhere. This is true of India, of Nepal, of Africa, anywhere else around the world. You'll find the wedding is that momentary time of celebration. And that marriage is a blessing for many throughout a lifetime until death puts an end to it. There is an end to it. The point is there is an end. There is an end to the wedding celebration. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Right? Isn't that one of the folk songs of our day? Turn out the lights. The party's over. There's an end to the party. There's an end to the marriage. There's an end to life. And yes, we have these momentary times of celebration. But then there's the day after. But brothers and sisters, there will be no end to this marriage. That's the point. There's no end to this marriage. In some senses, I don't like to take a vacation because of the end of it. Does anybody else relate to that? You have to come home. Well, we just were on vacation for a few days and we had to come home. Shall we apply that to weddings? in marriage, etc. We have an eternal hope. We have an eternal marriage. We have eternal relationship that God himself has established for us and he characterizes it as a wedding. It's the best picture that God could possibly use and every culture around the world relates to it. So it's, it makes sense that God would use that as the analogy because we can relate to it. But then, again, let's read how this ends. One, one more time. I think it's ironic or interesting that Revelation 19 and 21, referring to the marriage of the Lamb, in either case, has this reference to the crisis we're going through to get there. I never noticed this before, but listen. Revelation 19:6. After the destruction of Babylon, the great persecutor of the church, and all the trauma that happens... We just read that. Brother Chad read it earlier. After all this destruction and the great persecutor of the church and all the trauma has taken place, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, she's made herself ready through the fire and the tribulation of the previous chapter. So don't forget that. So we come out of the trauma into the marriage feast. That's the way this works. We're heading towards this marriage feast at the end. Revelation 21, 9 9 as well. After all the plagues and the judgment, the tribulation on the earth, Revelation 21, finally, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, 
So here, he has just scattered these plagues around the earth. And then he comes to me and he says, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And there it is. And then now in relationship with God forever. The apostle Paul speaks of this period of time, what's happening here at this table, what's happening over these thousands of years, Apostle Paul calls this the betrothal. Now, you understand what betrothal is? It's like getting engaged to be married. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that this is the betrothal, that, that the church is being betrothed. This is the process. There is still work to be done to prepare the bride. But the, the Old Testament betrothal, the biblical betrothal, was as committed as the marriage itself. Breaking the betrothal is like breaking a marriage. So I just, I just lay that out for you because, yes, we're not there yet. We're not the wedding supper, but we are betrothed, and God will not break his covenant with his church. So here we are. This is a covenantal meal, which means it's a relational meal. It's, uh, it's similar to Husbands and wives that come together in close communion with each other. And that's all part of nurturing the relationship. The same thing happens here at the table. There's something of a nurturing of relationship. It's, it's a meal. We have meals together. There's a, a forming of relationship and a, a developing and a, a maturing of that relationship in the koinonia or in the fellowship. So that's what this is, a communion meal with Jesus a precursor to the wedding feast itself. So as we head to glory, we're not in a place of perfection, but we're going to a place of perfection. But it's not just a place of perfection. It's not just a place of perfect righteousness or perfect comfort where there are no tears and such. Yes, it's all of that that's great. But remember, this I think is the essential element. We are headed towards an ultimate relationship, an eternal relationship. No more alone, no more forsaken, The forsaken has now become the one always in relationship, always rejoiced over, and the object of eternal delight and the the object of an infinite and everlasting love, the love of God. So that's what this meal signifies or seals for us uh, today. It, It seals God's commitment to us. And certainly if the blood of his own son is significant to you and to me, then that commitment has been sealed. That's how the covenant's been sealed, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we take this meal, we realize again the seriousness of your commitment, that you have committed your son to this. You committed the, the death of your son to this relationship, that, that we would be the purified, accepted, beloved of God, that we would be the bride of Christ prepared to be his bride and washed by his own blood. Oh God, as we come to this meal, help us to dwell even more upon the love of God, the seriousness of that love, the commitment of that love, the forevermore element of that love, and that that relationship is formed and sealed forever by the blood of your Son. O God, that we would receive this by faith today 
and as it were, as my brother said, bask a bit in this love, knowing that we have been loved and we are delighted in by our God and that he has sacrificed so much for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.